Uh, I'm going to say no one's better than me. But <laughs> yeah, let's go. Blow up. You know what time it is. Welcome, everybody, to Locked on Dolphins. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for Power to the Pod. You are deciding what we talk about on today's episode of Locked on Dolphins. We are two weeks away from the 2020 NFL Draft. I'm holding on to the edge of my seat. We did a nice little exercise yesterday talking about what the options would look like for the Dolphins if they chose to pursue Joe Burrow or Justin Herbert or Tua Tungvaloa in the 2020 NFL Draft, what the cost opportunity would be there. And the first thing I want to do today is I do want to give everybody an update on what that poll looks like, and this is probably the least surprising thing we'll say on this show. Today's episode brought... Three separate two-round mocks for the Dolphins. Which player hall did you like the best? First place is Tua at three scenario with 59%. The Herbert at five scenario is number two with 23%. And the Burrow at one scenario with just 18% of the vote. I would expect nothing less but astounding amounts of Tua love from the Dolphins fan base. It's death taxes and the Dolphins love of Tua. But that is not what we're going to dedicate our time to today. What we are going to dedicate our time to is questions brought by all of you. And the first one comes from Jack Ross. There are strong interior offensive linemen in this year's NFL draft. I believe the Dolphins should grab three or four offensive linemen, including two guards in the middle to late rounds to take advantage of this talent pool. How many offensive linemen do you think the Dolphins should leave the draft with? Well, I don't feel great about the prospects of plug-and-play offensive linemen, if that makes sense. So while there's a number of enticing blockers for the Dolphins, I don't necessarily think Miami could walk out of the fourth round with a starter, which makes it a challenging proposition for Miami in that with everything you want to to accomplish, if you want to get the two starters that your offensive line realistically needs, you are going to have to do it within the first 70 picks. So I believe you'll see them take an offensive tackle in the first round. As far as the interior offensive lineman, if you can get Cesar Ruiz, great. Jonah Jackson, the guard from Ohio State, great. Lloyd Cushenberry, the center from LSU, great. I think he can play guard. You get, to get outside of that group, and it's, you know, Robert Hunt from Louisiana is an interesting name. He's probably 56 or 70 is a realistic option for him. Damian Lewis from LSU is another power guard. I think 70s about the ceiling where I'd feel comfortable taking him. And then the Dolphins get into this gap where they have a big stretch, and they really don't have a lot of uh, NFL draft capital in the heart of the draft. So they're very top-heavy, and then they're very bottom-heavy. But they go almost a full round. They go from 70 to, uh, I believe, 141 is their next draft selection. So they have to wait in the the time in which they make their first six selections. They then have to wait that exact amount of time to make their next selection. And that's something we've talked about on this podcast before is that 
the middle rounds are the money rounds of the NFL draft. That's where a lot of teams make headway as far as getting starters where other teams are getting developmental players or specialists. So if you're Miami, your objective to Jack to fulfill your wish of grabbing two guards in the middle rounds, they have to add to that middle heart of the order, if you will. Because if they if they don't pick from 70 to 141, a lot of these mid-round guys that you're talking about are going to come off the board. I think Miami leaves this year's draft with three offensive linemen. If you set the over-under at three and a half, I'm definitely hammering the over or the under. But if you set it at two and a half, I'm still probably taking the over. Uh, Tone wants to know how Preston Williams' health is looking. From all accounts, seems to be in good shape. Uh, We last heard from Preston. It's either February or March. Uh, but it seemed like things were coming along well for him, and, and hopefully we see him back at 100%. And you know, if the NFL's training camps are not interrupted and we get that in July and August, then we will see Williams, you know, at least limited participation. I don't expect you'll see him full participation or without handcuffs to start, but we shouldn't be deterred if he's on the bike a lot, at least early on. Sandro. Man, so you're trying to sneak in two on me here, dude. Let's pick one. Where's Miami going to be five years from now? Scenario one, if they get the right quarterback in this draft, and scenario two, if they don't get the right quarterback in this draft. This is an interesting question, and for me, I think you have to look at The volume that the Dolphins have and the money that they've spent and invested in their team this year, knowing full well that next year they're probably going to be looking at $75 million in cap space, and two years from now you're probably looking at 60, and then you tack on you know extensions and stuff after that. So they have a spending runway here where they can spend aggressively if they want to, but also be selective with the guaranteed money. Uh, and the volume of NFL draft selections that they have that's like it's just a law of averages. The Dolphins aren't going to strike out in the draft. It's impossible. It's mathematically impossible when you have six picks in the first 70 and then you have four picks in the first 64 next year. Like law of averages says even the absolute worst drafting teams are going to get 45% of those hits. The great teams hit 60% of those hits. That's the margin for error. And like that, that's even more pronounced than what you actually see when you run the numbers for teams. So Miami, five years from now, will be reaping the benefits of 2020 and 2021. These will be players that are still on rookie deals, but they are matured players. And the ones that hit, and the Dolphins have so much early capital in the draft that I expect you will see this is a team that even if they miss on their quarterback, if they take Justin Herbert at five and he doesn't materialize the way that you want him to, I think you can look at what the Buffalo Bills did last year. And that should be the expectation for this football team because you feel really good about your head coach and Brian Flores. The dude proved he could coach his ass off. You've got 
a ton of new players being infused, young players with of high draft value being infused. Law of average, it says about half of them are going to be good. If you're a really great drafting team, two-thirds of them might be good. Like, really good. And the Dolphins, you know, the, the roster whittling away that it did was kind of the byproduct of Miami for a long time not having draft volume. Like, Chris Greer was the GM technically since 2016, and, like, the next two years he's going to make more picks in the top 75 than he's made in, like, his first three years on the job. <laughs> so I think that that influx in talent is going to be huge, and you will see, regardless of whether or not the Dolphins knock their quarterback pick out of the park and draft a Deshaun Watson-type, Patrick Mahomes-type impact, or if they swing and miss and they get a Mitchell Trubisky, Josh Allen-type, this team will still, because of all the variables at play, probably be a team that's going to be looking at hopefully 10 wins a season. Should be the expectation with a deep defense and some difference makers. They, they have a chance to add a lot of difference makers in the draft. Nameless Jester. How great is the smokescreen Miami has going on about which quarterback they think is their guy? This is a masterclass. The, the, the Dolphins deserve a lot of applause for their ability to keep the media and other teams off their scent. And this may have been a case where whenever the first set of intentions came out, and it was like, oh, there's some truth to that. Well, let's just flood the system, then screw it. So then it's Herbert, and then it's Burrow, and then it's Tua, and then it's Jordan Love, and then it's back to Herbert, and then it's back to Joe Burrow again. So inevitably there's going to have been truths out in the public space about what the Dolphins decide to do, but the best way to combat that is to not try and have everything be completely 100% airtight, but to throw off-speed pitches to complement the fastballs for another multi-sport analogy. Uh, Sandra, I will take this one. This is a really good question. Will Tua's marketability be the tiebreaker versus other quarterbacks? This is an interesting angle, but I don't necessarily think it's something that's going to feed into Miami's decision more or less than is this player going to help us win football games. And with Tua's medicals, I would question his medicals are a bigger impact on his draft stock than his marketability. Tua is a nationally recognized face, and that's a level of star power the Dolphins have not seen in a long time. I would argue the biggest star the Dolphins had this past decade from a national headline perspective was Reggie Bush, and he lasted two seasons. Uh, the Dolphins have been a team that, you know, they they spend big money in Dominican Sioux and they look for splashes, but they haven't had a player who has commanded the headlines in a really long time. When you think about the faces of the NFL right now, when's the last time a Miami Dolphin was among the faces of the NFL? Even Reggie Bush doesn't qualify for that. Tua would help immensely from that perspective, but I don't think Stephen Ross is, is motivated strictly by selling tickets like some 
owners and teams are motivated by. I think he wants to win. He's been here a decade, and he's done well to maximize his investment and make it into a, a really prosperous organization. You know, they got so much going for them in Miami Gardens, and I think Ross wants to win. And if you told him, you know, you can get a quarterback that's going to help you win, that's more important than we have a quarterback that's going to sell jerseys or or be on ESPN in the offseason or have a camera crew rolling around and following him everywhere. And even when you put that through the filter of what Brian Flores has stated, he's looking for in players. Uh, he, is, he has mentioned at least once in the past year that, like, he doesn't need stars. He needs workers and people who buy into his system and, and love the game of football and, to a, for all intents and purposes, checks all those boxes. But that star power may be skewed as a negative. And then you throw the... For Brian, from a Brian Flores in a team and locker room perspective. And then you throw the medicals in on top of it. I think the medicals are the big trump card right now. Max has a, Max McDermott has a question that is my absolute favorite of the day. It seems that 18 is going to be a dead spot to fill the premium holes the Dolphins have. Do you feel that 5 and 18 would be fair for 3 and 62nd and a 2021 second? So this is hypothetical of moving up to draft presumably Tua is who Max is proposing here. But five and eighteen to move for three a second or a third round early third round pick this year and a second round pick next year. Eighteen's a pretty penny to give up for a two a three and a two next year. I get there's a pick swap there. I wouldn't be using 18 as that chip. I'm trying to use 18 if I'm Miami as a chip to get back into the top 10 or as a chip to move back into the early 20s and try and pick up an extra third round pick to bridge the gap, that big gap that we talked about from 70 to 141. I think that's a better use of 18 than trying to use it involving a a trade to move up two spots from our top pick. So you're taking your top two assets and you're improving it by two spots and getting, I would say, I would argue it's negligible return on investment. Cliffy Mack, if any of the top four tackles start to fall, at what pick do you consider trading up to grab one? Seven, Carolina. I'm at least calling Jacksonville at 9, Cleveland at 10. If you listen to Draft Dudes, Joe dropped a bombshell on me this morning talking about how the Cleveland he's convinced the Cleveland Browns, and he, he referenced Dane Brugler of The Athletic uh, as an inspiration for this. He is convinced the Cleveland Browns are trading out of 10, and they want to draft offensive tackle Ezra Cleveland in the first round. So if you told me Cleveland was willing to move out of 10 to pick up an extra day two pick, so that they could draft Ezra Cleveland in the first round. I am absolutely calling them and trying to exploit that. I think that is, you know, I get Ezra Cleveland's an athlete, but there's athletic offensive tackles you could be taking at 10 that are much more polished. 
Bob wants to know if there's any chance Miami could trade up to three without using five. Maybe 1839, a first and second next year, and something else thrown in. You're just getting greedy at this point, Bob. Um, mathematically speaking, is this possible? Yes, this is technically possible. I could tell you right now the Detroit Lions are never going to sign off on dropping 15 spots. 15 spots is the equivalent and effectively doing it for a quarterback. Uh, the closest thing that that came that that we've seen to that in recent years is when the Rams traded up to one to go get Jared Goff in 2016, and they gave up two ones, two twos, and two threes to do it. If you're willing to give up two ones and two twos and two threes, which, Bob, you had pr proposed 18-39, one and two next year, and something else, so you'd have to throw in 70 and next year's three as well. And that Rams trade was to move up 15 spots for a quarterback. This would be Miami doing the same thing. Um, that is so much when you can probably just do a much smaller deal. And that's not to say Mekhi Becton, like, because Bob says, I'd love to get two at three, Becton at five, Jones at 26, and a running back at either 56 or 70. There's a fair chance you could get two at five. I don't think you have to move up if you want to. You could trade up from 18 to seven and give up no, two twos and uh, another mid-round pick. So you could still leave yourself on the table to go get Becton at 7 or 9 or 10 and get the same players, still keep 26. You know, you're talking about getting potentially Josh Jones at 26. I'd like to see him get an interior guy if they're going to double dip on offensive line early. And then you still have 56 or 70 at your disposal. So I think the combination of players that you want, Bob, you can get, but you're not going to have to give up two ones, two twos, and two threes to go and get it. Wade Tripp, your thoughts on drafting Hertz to compete with Rosen and grabbing offensive tackle at five, BPA at 18, and Ruiz at 26. I had a couple people ask me for uh, scenarios that involve the Dolphins not drafting a quarterback altogether. You know, I did the, the three scenarios yesterday looking at a trade-up to one, a trade-up to three, and stay at five. Not drafting quarterback at all. I know there's a subsection of Dolphins fans who still want to prescribe to the idea that, you know, Josh Rosen is a developmental quarterback, and I get it. And I was about as high on any as anyone on Josh Rosen coming out. He's my QB2 in 2018. But I have taken and accepted the yell on my evaluation of Josh before the draft because mentally speaking, he's he was nowhere near ready to touch a football field last year. And, you know, it looked pretty good in the preseason and it makes sense and that things are typically pretty watered down. You get him in live game action and the smoke was just pouring out of his ears. And, and I had no context beforehand and that he'd never been asked to do anything at the line of scrimmage before. You know, and it, it's, it explains why, you know, some throughout the league were a little lower on Rosen in the pre-draft process. He still went 10th overall, and the Cardinals traded up for him. 
So I get why there's some optimism there. And I do think there's something to work with there. But your your best case scenario for Josh now, because they changed the offense again. This is his fourth offensive coordinator in three NFL seasons. And he had three offensive coordinators in three seasons at UCLA. Like at some point, like there's just an information overload and the lack of stability adds up and it catches up to you. And I think that's what we've seen with Rosen and even what we saw with Rosen last year coming into Miami in the first place. Is there a viable chance Josh Rosen becomes a quality starting quarterback in the NFL? If it does, it's going to come from three years of learning and coaching, and and he is going to take a lot of TLC. And if you are the Dolphins, you do not put those eggs in that basket. And the reason why is you got the chance to see him last year. You can either double down on your mistake and say, we can fix him. Or you could say, okay, there's something to work with here, but we can't bank on that because if everything else in this rebuild goes the way it's supposed to, we are never going to be in a position to draft a quarterback highly ever again. Because if everything goes the way you're supposed to, you're going to be picking 17 or later every year because you want to be competitive every year. And if you get to that spot and you don't have a long-term answer quarterback, or if you put all the eggs in a Jalen Hurts and Josh Rosen basket and neither one of those guys materializes, you are up shit creek without a paddle. And now you're really going to have to give up like three ones, two twos, and two threes to jump up and draft one. And now you've run the chance of, in doing that, absolutely gutting your team from three years from now. Look what, the, look what happened with the Rams. Rams gave up all this capital in 2016. By 2018, they made it to the Super Bowl. But they burned themselves up against the cap. They had no draft picks and continue to trade their draft picks from that point onward to go out and get veteran expensive players that cost money and burn yourself and put yourself up against the cap. And they had nobody to replace these players with that they inevitably had to let leave because they had no money to pay them because they traded away all their, their young, cheap, rookie contracts. That's such a it's, that is a great way to accelerate your winning window to a dangerous degree, and that is not what I would want to see the Dolphins do. Mark Santos wants me to talk about Tua. Well, we already checked that box, Mark. Problem solved. Jesse wants to know if I like Cheetos, Puffs, or Crunchy Cheetos. Man, I couldn't tell you the last time I had either one, but I think I'm going to lean towards Crunchy Cheetos here. I don't like the, I know you get it with both of them. But I've had like the the cheese puff paws or whatever, and like it anything that's like the the puff balls when you gotta eat it with your fingers and put it in your mouth and then like you get the cheese stuck on your fingertips like at least a, a firm crunchy Cheeto like I don't have to have that transfer where I'm getting the saliva on my fingers. Come for the football steaks, stay for the snack food, the quarantine food. <laughs> Jamie Pendergast, which mid-round receiver do you like to compliment what you already have on the team? Well, I'd like to get a little bit of speed, and I'd like to keep the size thing rolling. Van Jefferson's the name that jumps to me. Uh, Van found a foot fracture at the combine, didn't test, so no athletic testing, but 
the senior bowl does uh, movement tracking and miles per hour tracking on their players. And uh, he was the fastest wide receiver there. I believe I saw Jim Nagy say, and there were guys at the senior bowl that ran like four, four flat. And van is a great route runner. He has great hands in traffic if you ask me who the wide receiver was this year that was going to end up being like the Terry McLaurin of this year's draft class, I would say Van Jefferson. He can win from the slot. He can win outside. I like what he his total blend and what he could bring. Wins a lot in RPO types action too. Leighton Stauffer. One of the main things I see two detractors talk about is how he waits for his receivers to get open. Do you see this on tape, and does it concern you? I will say this. Ben Solak at the Draft Network does quarterback charting. And um, obviously me being a senior NFL draft analyst at the Draft Network for myself, I do the film on, I've done the film on, I'm finishing my 300 players today. Thank goodness. So ready to be done. And when I watched two, I did know, like, he likes his first read. He's really willing to move his eyes to manipulate defenders, but he likes his first read. And Ben got into the quarterback charting for Tua, and his numbers showed in charting that that Tua's numbers drastically did drop off the deeper into his progressions that he got. Does he sit on those reads sometimes? Yes. All quarterbacks are guilty of that, especially the ones that are really, really good. And when you're at Alabama, you do have the luxury of guys that are typically – Give them an extra half second, they're going to get open because they're all so explosive. Uh, does it concern me? Not extremely. What I think the, the habit that Tua needs to break is tied to this somewhat, and it's going to get into the durability issues that he has. You have to move through your progressions and get the ball out of your hands. If you are Tua and you're a player who has endured the multiple ankle injuries, now the hip injury. You want to diminish your hits as much as possible, so do not sit on that primary for an extra half second and then put yourself behind schedule where you got a rush or the rush closes in around you in the pocket. He's really smooth within the pocket to sidestep the first rusher, but he's not a dynamic open field athlete to get off script and win a lot outside the pocket. I believe Ben said he charted like eight games and he only had like 20-something attempts outside the pocket in eight games. He very rarely gets outside the pocket. He manipulates the pocket really well. But he has to be willing to get that ball out of his hands, diminish those hits. Don't be afraid to take the checkdowns. It's an easy fix, theoretically. But you don't then want him to overcompensate and become a Charlie checkdown and to drop everything off because he doesn't like what he sees right away. So you're going to have to kind of walk the tightrope with him, but I do think it's something that, that should be acknowledged, and it's an area of improvement for him. And that, that, that was his biggest weakness for me on my film study for him was just take the check down sometimes. So I think it's a fair criticism. I don't think it's a make or break. And you see enough on his tape as far as eye maneuverability and manipulating defenders with his eyes, knowing where his primary is and where he wants to go with the ball to get defenders out of the way of that in, when he's in his drops. LSU Green's game is a great example. The very first play from scrimmage. Tua takes a drop. They've got an ISO receiver on the right-hand side of the screen, and they run this deep over route coming from left to right. And linebacker Patrick Queen is in underneath zone, and Tua looks right at the ISO receiver who has a double move and go to clear out. 
and his eyes come left to eye the crosser. They go back right, and then they go back left again, and he finally gets Queen to freeze and pop his hips just maybe like 10 degrees open away from where he wants to throw the ball, and then his eyes go right again, bang, and he drops the ball over the top of flat defender for a deep over route. And it was a great throw. He did the same exact thing against Tennessee, too. It was one of their, they, they had a lot of success with that over route. I believe that ball went to Henry Ruggs. But check that game out. First play of scrimmage against LSU is a great example of eye maneuverability, but still working that first progression. Hope you guys enjoyed. Listen, if you got questions in, and there were a bunch of questions, if you got questions in, and I did not address them here on the podcast, Swing over to USA Today's DolphinsWire.com. I'm going to handle some of the questions that I did not get to as written publishes for the day today in there. And I did get a a review from Dan Esquire that I did want to acknowledge. Uh, Dan, five stars, power to the pod, thank you. He said, would have gotten the five star regardless, but I was wondering if you could dive into your scouting sheets in terms of layout and source for amateur draft enthusiasts looking to make a draft guide in the future. I would say this, Dan, uh, check out Draft Dudes, which is the podcast I do with the Draft Network. It's also on the Locked On Network. And we talk draft year-round. And we get a lot into, especially in the summer months, so here shortly, into the technical side of scouting and, and how we choose to do it and things we've learned and things that might be able to help you uh, in that regard. So I would definitely recommend, Dan, you check out the Draft Dudes podcast, which I'm also on five days a week. And uh, you'll you'll get some great tidbits in there. But keep it locked in right here on Locked on Dolphins for all of your Dolphins. And we'll be back tomorrow to continue to talk about this build-up to the 2020 NFL Draft. I'm Kyle Krabs. Thanks so much for listening. Hope to see you again soon.